This is the FutureX podcast. In each episode, we interview a platform designer, author, or publisher. They'll talk about how to build online communities that are diverse, welcoming, and safe. Now, here's your host, Lee Schneider. This is the FutureX podcast. I'm Lee Schneider. In today's episode, you'll meet Matt Gemmel, a writer of thriller, horror, and suspense novels. He lives in Edinburgh, Scotland with his wife, Lauren, their son, Callum, and a labradoodle named Whiskey. Matt first tried his hand at writing stories when he was in his early teens. Writing had to wait for a while as he got a degree in computing science and then had a successful career as a software engineer consulting for companies, including Apple. He also released some software of his own. When it was time to try novel writing again, Matt started with techno thrillers and has since developed a large body of work. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. I, too, got interested in writing in my early teens. There's something about the early teens that sort of, I don't know, blossoms this this idea of writing things and thinking that you can actually do it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's a time where we become aware of quite a lot of uh, literature. We're exposed to things at school and you're getting to that age where you're developing your own tastes rather than the ones you've been guided towards. And I think uh, that's probably where an awful lot of people uh, discover and try to start nurturing their creative side. Mm. Now, your creative side is amazingly well-developed. You have so many projects. I hardly know where to begin, but why don't we start with talking about the novel series that you started writing first? How did that come about? Um, the This is the Kestrel uh, yes. Techno Thriller series, which is a, an EU-based uh, series with a, a bit of a sort of weird slash fringe science side to it. Um, I came up with the idea for the f- what has become the first novel in the series as a standalone and, and much more sort of compact in scope tale uh, than it turned out to be. And what I, I did in, in that case was I just tried to, as they say, pants it, you know, just get started, get going uh, without planning up front, which turned out to, for me, be a mistake. I'm someone who definitely needs to be a planner instead of a pantser to do the full outline and do the work up. So I found myself some portion of the way through, maybe a, a third to a half of the way through, unsure of where I was going. I'd sort of run out of steam and I had to rethink and I realised, although the details are slightly hazy now because it's quite a while ago, um, that I could build up some scaffolding around the story uh, to broaden the ensemble of characters and thus explore some more locations and add additional threads to the story. And as I was doing that, it was actually my wife who said, don't you think this is perhaps uh, the initial entry in a series that you're writing rather than a standalone tale. And as as ever, as I'm sure you know, uh, she was absolutely correct. And uh, it became the, the series that's there today. I'm reading the book, first book on Apple Books, and it's available here in the US on Apple Books. And yes, uh, I have a saying with my wife, which was, you were right all along. I'm thinking of having like a, a needlepoint or having that framed and put on the wall because she does help me with those things a lot. Or even a tattoo um, <laughs> that you can <laughs> could, you can see it regularly. <laughs> could could go there. Could go there. So this series idea is interesting to me because l- some of our listeners may be thinking, 
well, I can't write a series. It's enough to write one book. But I would say that you almost have to write a series in today's environment, whether you're self-publishing or seeking publishers to publish for you. Do you agree? Do you think that it, that series are a good thing? And how much more difficult is it to ramp up to a series? I think, uh, I mean, you have to consider the commercial side of things if you're going to have success. That's true of anything. Um, you don't want to force it creatively, but uh, there is so much flexibility when writing and editing is so much easier than writing uh, that you've <laughs> you've really got a lot of scope to go either way. And I think you're absolutely right that series are uh, what do well uh, for the obvious reason that you get repeat readers and you start to get into pre-orders and mailing lists and sustained interest and you start to get f- you know, fans, you give people a chance to actually get properly familiar with much larger arcs for characters. And my, my going back to my wife again, she is, um, she's a voracious reader, reads mm. constantly. One of these people who has a annual target for number of books read, which escalates every year and absolutely will not let a day go by sort of thing. Um, like people with a an Apple Watch or a fitness band, they can't have a day where they miss their steps count or, or mm. whatever it is. Uh, she's like that with reading. And I think a part of her advice was not just from the content of that first book we were talking about, but also the the commercial aspect to it. Uh, series do do uh, incredibly well. And I think that someone who's considering writing one should definitely give themselves the give themselves permission to do it mm. in terms of the second part of your question how do you ramp up to writing a series i think maybe thinking about it in terms of ramping up could be intimidating and it's mm. maybe better to consider the story as it is what you're going to see with a series typically is you're going to have some portion of the characters and some portion of the locations and the the narrative which will spread beyond a single book and there will equally be characters and so forth that are specific to the book you're writing at the time the biggest piece of advice the most valuable piece of advice that i think i could give regarding series is that you should as soon as you know you're writing a series start keeping a a bible or a master reference for the whole series uh, the way I do that is I just keep character sheets and location sheets or faces and places, a single virtual digital sheet of paper, one for each character, one for each major location, um, protagonist and antagonist, and I split them between the ones that are in all of the books of the series or will at least re- reappear in future and the ones that are simply for a particular book. And whenever you are writing and you find yourself adding a detail, say someone gets shot in the shoulder, that's probably something that's going to come back later, there's going to be some consequences for that. You add it into the character sheet, or if something happens in a particular location, or you flesh out how something looks where something is, you add it to the location sheet, and it will make your life so, so, so much easier in the future when you have to come back to this stuff, because... It is very difficult retrospectively to search through hundreds of pages worth of text mm. in order to extract this little detail you vaguely remember writing months or years before. And it's virtually impossible to answer the question, did I ever mention this thing I have in mind 
at all if you don't have that master reference. The series Bible is really the difference between uh, writing a new entry being a, a pleasure or being a, a horrible slog. <laughs> yes, that's so true. And I find if I, I, the work that I do anyway to build the stories could end up in other books, you, there's this axiom of really you need to know a lot more about these people than you're actually putting in the book in some ways. And your idea and advice of just creating almost like a log sheet or a character sheet where it all goes in, wonderful idea, because it's very, very hard, as you say, to remember all that stuff and remember where it goes in the sequence. So I'd say that's really good advice. Another thing that I would add is um, keep everything that you excise from a finished piece of writing you know i keep mm. a, a collection of deleted scenes and even if it's a good number of paragraphs just extracted segments that i decide to remove in the editing because it's uh it's surprising just how often that stuff comes uh becomes useful later even in future books in a series yes that's wonderful advice yeah i have something called orphans that's the name of my file exactly I yeah i mean <laughs> I found that actually the the antagonist, the the antagonist of the second book in that series um, was in fact an additional and ultimately unnecessary and of course completely different protagonist character in the initial draft of the first book. And I was able to reuse portions of the background in order to create that new sort of alternate reality version of the character from the mm. reader's perspective for the first time in the second book because I had that policy of not never throwing anything away. Interesting. L let's switch gears a little bit and, and talk about short online works. And the reason I want to talk about this, by the way, is because I think it's an excellent vehicle for drawing people into one's writing and an online vehicle. And since this podcast is about building online communities, this is something that I think is really useful for folks to hear. You publish a newsletter, and in it, one can access some short stories. How did you decide to start writing those stories, and where did they come from, from your other works? How did they derive, or are they all original? Uh, so, yeah, every week, uh, every Monday morning, uh, UK time or you know whatever you might happen to be I, I send out a story via email to the people subscribed to the newsletter and it's about a thousand to 1500 sometimes much about 3000 uh, words and I think we're up to 100 and 115 or so uh, so far uh, every single week not missed I didn't even miss the week when my son was born <laughs> wow. but only because I'd planned ahead and queued some up uh, as we as we got near the due date um what I found right back at the beginning when I decided I was going to make it you know have a serious crack at being a writer is that being a writer is it's a mindset as much as anything and the question you most commonly get, or certainly one of the most common questions you get from people who don't write, is where do you get your ideas? And if you do write, you realise the answer to that question is you will never want for ideas because there are ideas everywhere and all the time in everything. The problem is in retaining them and shaping them into something that resonates with people. 
So right from the beginning, I just started keeping an archive of tiny little notes in digital form, sometimes even on paper, of every single little thing that occurred to me that could in any way be part of a story, whether it was the central idea or just a a scene or something about a character. And you find that as soon as you start doing that, you notice more things that give you further ideas and entries. That's that's kind of what I mean by writing being a mindset. So I have hundreds of these, and some of them are a single word or a single line of dialogue, at most maybe 30, 40 words a paragraph, never more than that, and so, so, so many of them. And what I do uh, for a given week's story is that if nothing fresh has occurred to me that I absolutely must write about first, which is the majority case, I can go back through that archive and just see what tickles my fancy and see if I can turn it into something. That's really useful. I'm reading the one, I've I've read a bunch of them and I, I remember really liking, there's one about watches and, and, and holding time and freezing time. And we'll talk about Mastodon in a little bit, but you've put up on Mastodon some notes about watches. So I was really curious about the time, the use of time. You know, some people say that novels are only about time. That's their only subject. That's their material. But I wanted to hear from you. The theme of time, is that a thing? Is it something I'm just noticing? Or is it something that, you you know, you're you're working with often? I, I find that I come back to time very very often it's one of my most common themes whether in the 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 sort of obvious sci-fi sense of of manipulating time in some way or more figuratively in terms of how we're affected by the past and uh, nostalgia and melancholy and how the paths of our lives are determined. Uh, I, I, I guess that's why they say that, that you know novels are, are just fundamentally about time because if you think about it up at a certain level of removal, of course they are. Narrative is a, a flow of events. Um, I do find myself thinking about the past a great deal and when you do that, inevitably time becomes a more prominent theme. Um, so I would say that... I say time is probably up there with strange happenings as uh, my two most common themes and of course uh, you know spoiler alert that first book we mentioned before sort of uh, does both of those things at once mm-hmm. yes exactly yeah <laughs> I'm reading that now and I I was I was aware there's kind of a, a line you can draw through all of those so it sounds like to me that the short super short form the microfiction form more came out of just kind of a process. You had this material, you wanted to do something with it. Uh, it seems less, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems less like it was, oh, I have to draw on an audience. I better figure out something to put in the newsletter. How about this? I'll pump out some short fiction. It doesn't seem like that, but was it anything like that at all? Or was it more just kind of, I can show my process? I- I I wish that more of the decisions I make were based on shrewd commercial and audience building <laughs> motives like that, and my wife wishes that that, that was the case. Um, I used 
those sorts of uh, of points to justify the fact that I just wanted to play with these ideas. Um, the flash fiction or micro fiction format is just so it's incredibly accessible. Um, it's great for the reader because it's it's like uh, like one of these bite-sized candy bars. You know, you can just sort of have it anytime without ruining your appetite for the next meal, um, and it doesn't take any time to consume but for the the writer it's uh it's a it's a wonderful indulgence because you get to play with a new set of toys for a short amount of time um it can be a fabulous thing for those of us who tend to procrastinate from working on the longer thing that they really ought to be working on <laughs> at the time um but uh more seriously it's also it's a, it's an exercise isn't it because you're you're putting constraints on yourself. You've only got, say, a thousand words or so, and you've got the implicit constraints of within that strict sort of word count, you need to create something that is memorable and is compelling and uh, characters that hopefully aren't one-dimensional. Um, so it's it's like a challenge, you know? It's like working out when you're a writer and you also get to play with genres that you maybe haven't used before or you're not sure you can write in and also one of the huge benefits of the format is that you get to take some of these ideas that you've hopefully queued up or squirreled away and you get to just see how they begin to expand when you do shine a light on them you get to see if maybe they could become something it becomes a sort of trial run for an idea that could maybe turn into something later yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, I've experimented with it a little bit, and I've read others. I'm kind of fascinated with the form. Some people putting out this kind of microfiction try to make it interlocking, make the stories tightly connected to each other. Mm, mm. But there's a problem with that, which is someone may miss one, or your phone may mess up the delivery, and you're not reading them in order. So there's a fine line. There's kind of a happy balance between either making them completely independent, each story is its own story, or they are lightly connected in a way that they may reference another story, but it doesn't ruin it if you haven't read the other story. So there's not really a question in there, it's just kind of an observation on the you know ways I've seen people do this. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it either way as well. For my own part, uh, there are constraints that are a sort of fun part of the challenge in a way to flex the muscles and there are constraints that would act as a would weigh me down and would stop me from from maybe doing the thing so eagerly mm. and so regularly and so I like to keep each of these micro tales very separate very standalone dip in in any order um the the one nod to uh, the sort of higher level perspective is that when I collect them into anthologies, obviously there has to be, it's, it's like putting together a, an album or I guess writing a screenplay, there has to be a certain, there has to be a certain flow and a certain um, overall a rise and a fall, there has to be a, a set of beats, so you can't uh, obviously do sci-fi 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 or or similar mm. emotional tone again again there needs to there, there, i guess there needs to be some art and some intentionality to how they all follow each other in whatever sequence you choose even though they're intended primarily to be uh, consumed individually <laughs>
we're framing this whole conversation around developing community around one's work. How do you do it? Uh, we talked about well, maybe doing books that are series are a way for people to get on board and connect. And maybe this microfiction and newsletters go together in the way that it keeps people going. Have you seen any connection, anything like the your work in software being in when you have to develop a community around software at all, like developing a community around writing novels, or do they feel like two separate parts of your life? Uh, I, I suppose I would initially say that they feel like quite separate parts, but I think that whilst the specifics for each industry or each field of endeavour are naturally uh, quite particular to that field and quite different. Uh, like anything, if you look at it at a high enough level, there are of course commonalities and, and maybe lessons to be learned. I mean, when I was uh, contributing a lot to the open source uh, community movement, I'm not sure what we call it uh, collectively, when I was putting out a lot of open source code, you are giving something away for free, which is of... Um, value in terms of saved time, saved thought, saved effort, um, the contribution of functionality which will be potentially paid for and so forth. Um, so you're giving people something for absolutely nothing and you have a very technical audience in a sort of work mode of thinking. Whereas when you're uh, you're putting out fiction, you're writing books, you're asking people to pay for something, it's, uh, it's the, on the entertainment side of things rather than the technical and work side of things. So there are certainly differences, but in, in, in both cases, you do build up, uh, I don't know, I, I never liked terms like fans or followers or, or whatever, but people are interested in your work, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And uh, the accrete, I think, and uh, the real question is how do you how how do you gain a presence? How do you make people aware of your work? How do you make them interested enough and engaged enough that they want to tell other people about it? And uh, I guess that's the central question that we're talking about here. Um, and I, I suppose there are. There are sort of three answers. It's a, it's a question that I've been asked for years and years and years because mm. I, you know, I've done any number of conferences all over the place and written articles, both my own and for for various magazines, newspapers, etc., etc. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have a decent social media following. And the question tends to be, how can I? How can I get out there? How can I get seen? How can I get my app seen? How can I get my book seen? Um, I suppose the the cop-out answer is do good work but of, of course that's um it's a nice thing to say to a child but the re reality is somewhat different and over the years after so many uh, times when I've had to say god I wish I had a better answer for you um I think it comes out of two things one and they're both uncomfortable things of course because this is real life so number one is you are going to have to get comfortable with promoting yourself even though it can feel for many people maybe particularly creative people in which i absolutely include uh, software developers mm. um it can feel icky and like things that the other people do whoever however we see people as the others um those who sell rather than those who make i guess it can seem like something that is 
beneath us or unnatural for us. It can be an unnatural voice. It can feel embarrassing or exposing or whatever, but you just have to get comfortable with putting your stuff out there. Um, Every time I have a book or even a story every week that comes out, there is a small part of me that becomes the little boy at primary school when the class all had to write a story and I wrote a scary story and it was the one that the teacher chose to read out for the class. And that's true, that happened. Mm. And I felt so... I didn't see it as any kind of harbinger or it it spurred me on to pursue this or anything like that. I just felt really embarrassed and exposed and I wanted to shrivel up into a ball, you know. And you always feel that a bit. And whenever you're promoting your own stuff, it can just feel exactly like that. But the reality is that you must put yourself out there and you need to do it repeatedly, even acknowledging that it will annoy some people and put some people off. And some days someone might say, well, why do you keep telling me about this? But you just have to be willing to do it. Um, So it's better to get started early on. The worst example of having to learn to do promotion is writing the worst content that a a writer of fiction can have to write, which is the the back cover copy. (laughs) You know, it's awful. That is the worst. It's much harder than writing voiceover. Oh, it's terrible. It's a a horrendous um, thing. I, when I wrote my, the, 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 the jacket copy, or the blurb, as it can be called, although sometimes the blurb refers to testimonials from other people. But the, the jacket copy for that first novel in the Kestrel series called Changer, um, it was a it was a half-arsed attempt. You know, it was terrible because I was probably sitting there with, uh, you know, clenched buttocks the whole time, just horribly uncomfortable with it. And uh, I did it as a sort of throwaway thing. And I went out to my beta readers and trusted friends. And I, I vividly remember this. I was standing on, it was a beautiful sunny day. I was standing in one of the railway stations on the, the Circumvesuviana, the, the railway line that goes around Mount Vesuvius in Italy with my wife. We'd uh, been to, I don't remember which of the sites. It wasn't Vesuvius itself that day. But I got a phone call from a friend in France and he basically just said um, the back cover copy isn't worthy of the book Mm. and at first I was that's a bit you know that's a bit strident Um, tell me how you really feel but (laughs) I knew he was right you know that way that the defensiveness only rises up past a certain level because you know that it is completely true Um, so I went back to the little villa we were staying in, where there were bowls of strawberries waiting for us when we arrived. I remember that as well. Um, and I sat out in a balcony for, or terrazzo, I suppose, for three days on and off and wrote dozens of versions of the bloody back cover, just basically <laughs> forcing myself to learn how to do this horrible alien thing, which is a whole different art, as you say, from you know writing the novel itself and eventually got something pretty good but I still look at it and find the occasional word that I would change um, and it is the part I least look forward to but yeah you just need to get comfortable with promotion so that, that's the, the first part of this incredibly long rambling answer the second uncomfortable truth that is an answer to the question how do you build a community of engaged interested people is that you just have to keep showing up over the long term. Uh, I mean, it's 115 weeks of stories 
and it's the novels and it's years worth of work on open source code and releasing it and going to conferences and standing up there in front of people and talking and writing a, you know, a million words on the blog and just keeping at it, chip, 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 chip. Mm -hmm. And it, it happens um, over, what would you say, like geological time, I suppose. <laughs> yes. the, the shortcuts are are like the shortcut of winning the lottery. You know, yes, it will massively accelerate you, but you just can't count on it happening. What does work is just keeping on doing the work. So true, all so true. The other thing that I think about a lot is what is one's online persona? It's, and I mean that in kind of two ways. One is people are going to view me, you, they're going to have an image. So maybe we should be aware of that. You know, is the image a lighthearted person? Is the image uh, a curmudgeon? Is the image, uh, you know, someone who only emerges from their cave to send out some epistle on Mastodon? Who are you online? And that can be another uncomfortable truth, but really worth looking at to see what kind of person people see you as and what you're putting out there. It's some, true. Right? Um, every, yeah. Sorry, carry on, can I? Uh, some people are um, confessional. You know, it's a, it's an, their their use of this kind of media is an endless confessional, and others are the smartest guy in the room. Like that's their persona, which is a bit obnoxious. But there's a you know a grand history of that kind of person, like Isaac Asimov and people like that. So, but knowing at least awareness of it, I think, is a real value. I, th I think that's absolutely true. Uh, there is no one who knows the entirety of a person, um, not even, and perhaps especially not the person themselves. Um, you're also always seeing a version of someone. If you're, if you're say, doing what I used to do, releasing open source code and doing technical stuff, speaking to people about that, writing articles, then people are seeing the professional side of you and however you spin that personality-wise. If you're writing books, it is simultaneously obscured because it's characters but it's also more intimate because you cannot write uh, fiction which does not contain you in some way mm -hmm. that's just the way that art works i think that one of the particular trajectories of life is that when we're younger and we know a lot less about who we are, we are unfortunately much less filtered about expressing these confused and temporary and fragmented versions of ourselves. And then as we get older and get a better understanding of who we are, we sort of simultaneously realise that we must consciously filter that in order to in order to do whatever you want to do, to fulfil the social contract or to... Uh, you know, expand your work to make people like you or otherwise to influence people there has to be a consciousness to the shaping of how people see you. I think I mean I've done a lot of those personas you talk about my god I've done curmudgeonly I've done that <laughs> to death um, it's, it's something that goes well with the I don't know, I suppose the culture and the accent and everything else here. It's easy to sound mm -hmm. uh, amusingly acerbic about stuff. Uh, but I think um, that these days I've realised that it is, I think, earnestness and that, that confessional quality, but without being completely exposed. 
it's absolutely possible and indeed perhaps one of one of the, the the best things to engage with people if you select what it is you want them to know about you but be completely truthful about that thing and I think that is what allows people to build a connection with a stranger because none of our experiences are totally unique overall the I think the goal of writing is really to take whatever is beyond daily experience whether it's science fiction and different times and ghosts and monsters whatever it is uh, strange abilities superheroes these days all the time and it's it's not about those things it's about finding the core of resonant human experience that can make people read those things and believe that they are happening because they seem to be happening to people who are in some way like them and it's finding the human core of things, I think, that is probably one of the best ways to connect with an audience, whether it's in your work or in your social media presence or in person or anything else. Yeah, reading uh, the first book in the Kestrel series, it made me think of Hitchcock in a way, that, that sense of the ordinary man or ordinary person in extraordinary circumstances. And it allows us to, as a reader, to just project ourselves into that and go, what if that were me? And that's very powerful, no matter how, as you say, strange, outer-worldly, weird things get, we still have to see ourselves in those stories somehow. Completely. Um, that, that moment that you're talking about, uh, often called the the inciting events, if you believe in the, the sort mm -hmm. of standard story structure approach to things, uh, that point where reality takes a left turn and things get strange and you're drawn in. You're not drawn in because of the thing that happens. You're drawn in because of that spine tingling, that free zone of excitement where you see it happening to someone who seems normal or to have a mundane life at first. And that's why I wouldn't even like to guess what percentage of those microfiction tales that I write, uh, they focus on that single scene mm -hmm. implicitly within a, a larger story that doesn't exist yet. It's that point where things get weird because that is endlessly compelling uh, to me and I, I think just to human beings in general. Definitely, definitely. Now, we speaking of social media, we met on Mastodon. I'm a tr Twitter. I, I had to abandon Twitter because it, it did get too weird, and I didn't want to be the ordinary guy on the extraordinary platform that was crashing. And uh, we, I'm on a server called SCICOMM.XYZ, SCICOM, which is a science communicator, author, and scientist server. How has the experience of Mastodon been for you so far? Well, I, I mean, I was a very heavy Twitter user. Um, I think I have nearly 30,000 followers at, at some mm. point, going, going down a few thousand in recent years. But I used that an awful lot. And I was there right at the start when it was um, spelled, I think, without the initial I. And it was wow. invitation only. <laughs> and so I was that there is, for that. <laughs> that is yeah. And Mastodon now, I mean, you're right, Twitter has gone, uh, gone absolutely to hell. It's become... Uh, what 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 do you call it? A dumpster fire, sort of. Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. the expression, isn't it? Um, so I um, I'm I'm still technically present there, but I don't really 
use it or read it or check it. I use it as a broadcast-only medium, another wonderful contemporary term, Um, just because of those aforementioned commercial necessities. And I am now on Mastodon, as you say. I'm on the Mastodon.scot instance, of course. Uh, (laughs) Yes, of course. Because it ticks some boxes, the main one being that I didn't have to set up my own server because who needs another thing to administrate the experience uh, of Mastodon for me has been, I, I guess it's it's been one of nostalgia more than anything. Um, I've been on the internet since the early 90s and I have done many, many of these getting onto a new community and everyone gets excited and people flood in and suddenly every developer's making a, a client for it or an app uh, and there's just huge excitement, and then the, the press starts talking about it, and it's a it's a wonderful, happy, implicitly enthusiastic sort of time, mm. and it reminds me more than anything specifically of those early days of Twitter, except uh, not that the early days of of Twitter didn't have this, but the, the noticeable thing about Mastodon is that there seems to be this uh, this DNA of of decency and tolerance and I guess both accessibility in the broad sense but also boundaries and that appeals to me enormously because I think it's only it's one of the only things that can make social media functional if the function is to connect people rather than to advertise to people um I think it's I think it's all about boundaries uh, 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 equally to inclusivity so on the one hand, it's got, um, you know, they, they cajole you to add uh, accessible descriptions for people with visual impairments to all images. It's a first-class feature. It's right there. Um, I, I love any nod to accessibility. But there are also content warnings um, so that you don't need to see content that uh, you don't wish to see. Maybe it's upsetting for you. Maybe it's a piece of news you don't want to see. It's depressing, whatever it is. Uh, and they have these built-in you know, core to the system means of just of tailoring your experience towards something that is tolerable for you. And that's something that was either completely absent on other platforms because they're obviously advertising driven and you need to see the things they want you to see. Um, or they were added only laterally or under protest or in a half-hearted sort of way. Whereas Mastodon being something that's not driven by advertising views or selling your data and isn't a single centralized place with one decision made and that's it um it's much more about giving people the view of their timeline that they wish to have so i think that is inevitably going to make you think of the early days on a service where equally inevitably you were only seeing the timeline you wanted to see because it was just your particular people your particular friends or colleagues or whatever that you'd invited on and there was a a much smaller world feel to it so mastodon right now absolutely takes me back to that time especially with the Mm. the proliferation of of new apps and so on but equally i am more than old enough to have seen this so many different times before and i know the trajectories it can take but I think Mastodon's got a chance of outlasting uh, a lot of these other things, albeit I think the fury about it at the moment will die down a bit inevitably. <laughs> um, I mean, Musk has obviously set fire to Twitter um, with rocket fuel poured over the top. Yes. Um, 
and a big Tesla battery set on fire underneath as well, <laughs> so it keeps burning forever, and the fire department can't put it out. You know, uh, stretching the metaphors there, but I think it'll die down. But I don't think it'll ever uh, go down to where it seemed to have been quite stably for a few years previous to this last few months, uh, because people are realising that they can actually have civil conversations, but equally that they can block people or uh, words or hashtags or entire other servers' instances with impunity. And that much more importantly, there is a culture of doing that. Yeah. And I, th I think that actually one of the best ways to make, this may be paradoxical, but one of the best ways to make a community inclusive and welcoming and inviting is to make sure that everyone knows that they can and should uh, set their own boundaries with regard to what they're exposed to. Um, I'm not for a moment saying, uh, you know, an armed society is a polite society. I hate that idea. Um, obviously, it's a cultural anathema mm -hmm. of where I'm from. Um, but what I'm saying is that I think if you teach people right from the start, even implicitly by the tools that are available to them and by what other people are doing, that they can set their own boundaries and it's okay to say no and it's okay to mute or to disable uh, boosts as retweets are called on Mastodon uh, and that you can just choose, then I think um, by no means um, will that have the effect of stifling what you're exposed to rather it will make the experience pleasant enough that you're more likely to stay there and to engage i mean god knows um there are, there are almost I, I can't imagine what would take me back to twitter not because there aren't fantastic lovely wonderful intelligent engaging people there but because there just isn't the control to get rid of the all the horror of the rest of it and for the yeah. sake of my own mental health and happiness, uh, I just need to draw the line. And Mastodon lets me do that. And that's actually the main thing I like about it. Exactly. What's not there is as important as what could be there. And what's not there, this, these controls really help. And I hope also that it stays somewhat small or feeling small. I, I think it hit 10 million users this week and it seems to be on an upward path and all that's great. But there is the opportunity to keep it a neighborhood feeling, which I really like about it. Neighborhood's the key word. I mean, one of the, I guess one of the most annoying things about Mastodon, one of the least accessible to those who don't know what it's about features um, is also one of its strengths. And that's the fact that there are all these separate servers, these instances, you know. <laughs> yes. um, you don't just go to something.com and, and make a username. So the downside is, of course, how do you explain that to someone who's not pretty darned tech savvy? You know, you need a this weird username, username that's at username at server, and it, there's lots of strangeness. But the incredible benefit of it is that each instance or server that you're on has a local timeline. So you've got people who have already self-sorted themselves by some kind of affiliation mm -hmm. uh, in most cases. Um, if I want to read an awful lot of Scottish people complaining about something that the Conservative <laughs> government in London has done, well, I just need to click local timeline on mastodon.scot. Um, your server, you know, you can read people. It's science and things, isn't it? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Mine is a interesting blend of absolute hardcore real scientists and mm. science fiction writers and authors. 
so was, you've you've gone to that because you're attracted to that and that's what you'd like yeah. to read and you've got it you don't even need to search for for hashtags or or that's keywords right. or anything because people have pre-sorted themselves and that's I don't know why more people aren't trumpeting, uh, groan, no pun intended, mm. this aspect of it, because it's a wonderful way to get back that, that small community feel, that local neighbourhood feel, um, and to discover new people who are that much more likely to be the kind of people that you'd want to interact with. Yes. And one of the great things, the early great things about the internet that I loved, which is present on Macedon, is you would just find things like people writing about paper airplanes or there's a guy, a scientist uh, who posts about snails, only snails. That's his thing, snails. But it's great because I would never encounter that in my usual travels. So to find someone who's writing about some fantasy fiction that I'd never heard of before or uh, some geological strata somewhere or doing a photograph of a certain kind of a fish I love that, you know, and that was one of the pleasures of the early pleasures of the internet, that it was like browsing the most eccentric library stacks in the world, like a library maintained by Borges or somebody, and you could just encounter anything. And it's it has that quality. I like that about it. It very much does. Um, it also, uh, this is a closely related thing to what you're talking about, it very much has that feel that everyone is still in that glorious honeymoon period where they feel at liberty to post their stuff, their yeah. crazy obsession, their, their own particular art or their first dabblings in X or Y or Z. And um, it's not just charming and delightful and authentic and and, and exposing and all of that. But uh, as you say, it's also a fantastic way to meet new people and mm -hmm. to feel creatively inspired because you see others taking their steps to do that. And when you've got an algorithmic timeline that's pushed by, that's sorry, driven by advertising and motivated by advertising and you've got troll accounts and, and mm. God only knows what else. And when the CEO of the company <laughs> exactly. is trying to destroy it more than anyone else, uh, you just don't have that. You automatically have a reticence because you're afraid of um, being algorithmically demoted or being attacked or, or whatever else there is. And Mastodon at the moment is kind of a green field that doesn't have that. It's much more like the the built-in boards or the forums of, of 20 mm -hmm. years ago. And it's it's just delightful and energising. And it has done something that I, I, I didn't think you could do anymore for, for me at my point in life, and that's make social media something that I would actually want to play with uh, and enjoy rather than just use as a, a tool. What advice would you have for others, authors, coders, creative folk, who want to develop an online community around their work? I think that persistence is, of course, the, the underlying key. Uh, you need to keep doing the work. And the moment it stops uh, being something that you feel is enjoyable to you or or, or challenging in a positive way for you, uh, it's maybe time to reassess where you're going. The second thing is uh, that you just need to be willing to sell yourself. Everyone has to be a salesman on the internet. Comparatively few people have huge publishing houses and marketing teams and so on. And that's actually a good thing because it's democratised and we really do have all the tools we need, including social media. So you You've, uh, you've just got to push yourself to get into the very uncomfortable for me zone of selling yourself and your work to 
other people um, and just stick in there for the long term. It can seem like it takes forever, but it really does build up day by day, week by week. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about what we can all do to keep the online community safe, welcoming and diverse? I, I, th I think the, the lesson that we are all taught as children and that pr presumably exists in many of the holy books of the world uh, as well, that you treat other people how you'd like to be treated, uh, but equally don't let other people treat you in the way you don't wish to be treated. It is almost always the right choice to try and engage directly with people and authentically, but remember that you don't owe people anything and that you don't need to engage with people who are unpleasant and detrimental to you. So I would say the best way to keep a community inviting and accessible and all that sort of thing is to set an example, but don't uh, let yourself be taken advantage of. So Matt, where do readers find you? Where is your website and how do we locate you online? Well, I am at mattgemmel.scott, and that's Matt with two T's and Gemmel, which is G-E-M-M-E-L-L, -L, and it's .scott because I'm from Scotland. But frankly, uh, because of all that stuff we talked about, about online community building over the years, you can probably just put my name into any search engine. I'll, I'll be at the top, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure, Lee. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Future X podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or anywhere fine podcasts appear in your feed. Post a comment on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on the show. For more info about Future X, visit futurex.studio. Be sure to check out Matt's podcast, called Trouble with Writing. It's a podcast with focused, hard-won techniques for solving all the problems you might encounter when planning, writing, and editing your novel.